Hello, and welcome to Calming the Chaos with Tracy Canella, licensed mental health counselor at Lokahi Counseling. This podcast provides tips, tools, and techniques to help people who are overwhelmed, stressed out, anxious, depressed, angry, or struggling with an addiction, eating disorder, or relationship problems. Through my personal stories, experiences, and training, my intention is to offer you new ways of coping with mental chaos and moving toward a calmer, more peaceful life. As you listen to this podcast, just know that although I am a licensed mental health counselor, this podcast is not a substitute for counseling or psychotherapy. So if you're really struggling with something and you don't have a counselor, I strongly recommend that you find a licensed mental health counselor in your area to help. You can do this by calling your local crisis line or by going to www.psychologytoday.com and doing a search for counselors in your area. That being said, now let the chaos begin. This episode of Calming the Chaos is called Helping the Hangry. Hangry is now an official word in the Oxford English Dictionary, and it's a combination of two words, hungry and angry. It has a simple definition, which is bad-tempered or irritable as a result of hunger. Today, we have the perfect guest to help us understand hangry and how this condition can increase mental chaos. I'm here with Katie Hart, the owner of HeartSpace in Olympia, Washington. Katie is duly certified as a nutritionist and a licensed mental health counselor. During this podcast episode, I'll talk with Katie about how the physiological condition of hunger can cause increased mental chaos and create the condition of hangry. She'll also give us some helpful tips and tools about how to manage and prevent hanger. Welcome, Katie, to Calming the Chaos. Thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast today. Yes, thank you for asking me. Awesome. Well, let's just jump right in and have you tell us a little bit about yourself, the work you do, and what led you to do the work that you do. Okay. Like Tracy said, I have a private practice in Olympia, Washington called HeartSpace Mental Health and Nutrition. And we work with patients who have all sorts of different conditions, mental health, food relationship, nutrition. We currently have three providers and we take a whole host of different people and try and help them understand the relationship and connection between what they're eating, how they're feeling, and why they might be having some of the struggles and things that they're having, as well as coming up with some food-based solutions to those problems. We try and do that to prevent people from needing to be on excessive medication to deal with mental health or unnecessary medication, I might say. One of the things that I notice and believe is that our Western medicine system often resorts to pharmaceutical medication quickly before we assess our foundational health, like how, like in Tracy's podcast, like how are people tending to their mental health? What tools are they using? And for me, I add the additional piece of how are they eating and are they eating in a balanced way to keep their mood and their emotions regulated? And then if they're doing all that, there absolutely is a time and a place for additional medication. So nutrition and foundational comes first, and that is the philosophy behind this to eliminate the unnecessary use of medications. 
Absolutely. Because I believe, as well as you probably see in your practice, I believe that a lot of people, given the right mental, emotional tools, and given a more foundational, balanced way of eating and living, including the way they're exercising, can actually create a much more stable foundation. Great. Well, so how did you get into this line of work? What really got me most interested in pursuing this as a profession was I grew up in a pretty traditional family, but also a very Western diet eating family, if that makes sense. And we grew up in a time where it was diet sodas and it was low carb eating. And my parents were often on a diet and following the latest fad. But what we often had in our house to eat was a lot of refined, processed, carbohydrate-type food. And I consequently went to college around 17, and I wasn't the healthiest at that point in my life, and I didn't feel the best, and I didn't understand why. So I became really interested in nutrition as a what I could change and what I could do differently in my life. And I started doing that once I was in undergrad. I started exercising more. I started feeding myself in a more balanced way. And um, consequently, I started feeling a whole lot better in my body. And I felt a whole lot better in my mind. And I felt a whole lot more regulated. And I really started to think, I'm onto something really wonderful. And I want to find a way to share this with other people. Absolutely. So I noticed that a lot of, in my graduate program, a lot of people came into the world of therapy because they had their own mental health problems. So that's sort of the same thing. And we are not feeling great. And you decided to get some education about that and be able to share it with others. I think that's a lot of the reason why helpers go into the helping field, because they've had problems or seen problems in family members and friends. And they've decided to give back and learn and grow. Certainly, yes. And I wanted to be able to help my family more with their struggle. And then I also much like you just said, uh, people go into mental health, people go into nutrition to work on their own things and then share share sort of the knowledge that they find. Um, and I also had struggle with food addiction at that point, mm-hmm. trying to balance healthy with unhealthy. And also other addiction r- sort of runs in my genetics. And some of what I may touch on in a bit is part of the combination is always why we become passionate. And part of it is we have a wealth of ability to be more compassionate when we've had our own struggles with different things. Like we really understand a patient's struggle when we've had struggles of our own of some kind. And I believe that's been an imperative part of how all these things, what I do in my work now, and also what I do in my own personal life, how that all came together to create just really what I feel like I'm absolutely meant to be doing every day. Can you explain a little bit about physiology since you are somebody who I know personally is into longevity and physiology and how things work in the body and the mind? Are you able to explain the physiology of hunger and how that relates to increasing and intense emotions like anger? Yeah. What happens for people from a physiological perspective So we are either in a fed or a not fed state. And when we're in a fed state, our body sends off certain signals that tell 
our mind and tell our body that we are fed, we are satiated. When we are in an unfed state, which means I've used up all the active nutrition that I have given myself, and now I am at a baseline state of zero, so I have nothing in my reserves, and then I switch to using reserves that I can pull from my body, I turn into being in an unfed state. And when I'm in an unfed state, my body is seeking food, and it will either find ways to convert things that I already have on my body, or it will start looking around in my kitchen, or in the environment, or noticing the fast food signs, or the smells of food. So there's a whole different hormonal situation that happens for us when we are unfed, where we start to become hungry. And there's a, a physiological response behind all that that gets a little sciency, but the bottom line is that when we're in that state, we release different neurohormones and different endorphins than when we are fed. Some of the key players in that would be when I am food seeking, I am releasing a lot of dopamine, which is a I've got to go get food hormone. And I am releasing a lot of serotonin once I get food. So if I feel really hungry, my body is sending off a lot of dopamine. It's also sending off a hunger hormone. And then I am looking around and getting food. And let's say then I find something to eat. Once I have it and I start eating it, my body releases a rush of serotonin, which tells me, ah, I found what I needed. And so when you're talking about being unfed and the body's reserves being depleted, and then you're in this food-seeking mode, is it kind of like when you have to have aggression, like back in the Stone Ages when we had to hunt things and gather things, and there is this sort of intense feeling of aggression that goes on? Yes, that's a really good way to describe it. And that's, that's where, when we talk about the mental-emotional state that people get into, when they are hungry or hangry, as you said, mm -hmm. what tends to happen is we have this normal physiological response that I'm hungry and I need food. But then we also have an emotional response, which is I need to go find food now. And that combines to make us feel more frantic or more food seeking and can contribute to now having mood hormones get released. Like you said, you can imagine that if in a primitive way, if a, an animal, and we talk a lot about this, in fact, excessively so, I think sometimes it gets confusing. We talk about this sort of adrenaline cortisol response, the fight or flight, as we often call it now. And what happened, if you imagine, before we had, we live in a, a day and age where it's just so food access is right around the corner. And initially, when we were developing as a species, we didn't have fast food, we didn't have convenience stores, we didn't even have grocery stores in abundance the way we do now. So we really needed an internal drive to go find water, to go find food for resources to keep ourselves alive. Food at that point was created in a much different sense. So berries were sweet because that was the drive to go find the serotonin, the sugar in the berry to make us feel satiated, to make us feel happy. We like to find nuts because nuts have a lot of fat and fat is also very satiating. But what has happened now because of our food industry is fat and sugar 
are so readily abundant in food that I can go to my, I could walk a few blocks from my house right now and find fat and sugar in abundance. So that I don't need to be as driven and food seeking to go find those things. They're very easily accessible and in fact, abundantly so. And you work with people who come into your sessions, I assume, that they are hungry. I know I do. When I work <laughs> with eating disorders, I have, I have actually experienced people coming in hungry, and I do have some food in my office for that. So when you see a person and they do exhibit some signs of hunger, I guess it would be interesting to share ideas, just have you tell us a little bit about what you see. I can tell you what I see, but I'm interested because of the nutrition point of view, what you see as a sign of hunger in a person that you're with in a room? Oh, that's a great question. I notice that people are more irritable. I notice that people have much more trouble focusing. I notice that people don't seem to always track as well the conversation that we might be engaged in. And even to the point of, I notice obviously you or I are talking sometimes about food in a session. And I notice that sometimes the talk of food makes the person describe the desire to go find food afterward. So talking about food can actually increase that drive and that dopamine response to go and find food right away, which I really encourage people not to judge themselves for. I think that it's it's very normal to have a response of talking about food, talking about the trouble we have with food often activates our response to go want to find food. So one of the things that I notice with kids, and kids have very quick metabolism, so they're quick to get hungry. They also are often more quick to stop eating when they don't need any more food. So they regulate oftentimes with less emotional eating response than adults do. So they will eat as much as they need and then they will go on with their day. So they are often just at the edge of needing to eat again because they pace themselves throughout a day. So sometimes by the time they come to my office in the afternoon after school during snack time, you can tell that they're having a lot of trouble focusing. They're having a lot of trouble doing the activity that we're doing. And I do notice also that when you get something with a good combination of fat and protein and carbohydrate in their system, they often regulate and come back to sort of being present and being more grounded. Yeah, I noticed that when, when they first come in the office, their response to that first question, would you like some water? I also have coffee and tea making abilities. That's, all, that's what I say when they come in. <laughs> and, and their response to that question sometimes is you can tell because their eyes get a little bit bigger. And I could see that nonverbal response where, yeah, I really, I really would like something now. And it's a little bit of a clue to me as far as maybe this person could be hungry. And with kids, one of the helpful things is using play and using activities. So making play or doing drawings or playing a game. And another thing that helps them to stay focused on what the discussion is at hand is giving them a snack. So sometimes it takes the edge off and it gives them something to do while they're also hanging out with you, which is obviously a strategy that I would not use necessarily with an adult because that goes against the idea of teaching mindful eating and non-emotional eating. But for kids, that's a really common strategy that we use. 
I appreciate you saying the difference between adults and children as well. I don't know what mental chaos shows up in the child population when they are hungry. If they, I know some adults will, if somebody's in the same room with them and they are hungry and they don't want to admit it, they will take those emotions that they feel in their body and just become so overwhelmed that they'll start to strike out at another person. But I don't know about the kids. Kids, it seems, uh, from what you've said, are a bit different than adults. So how how do kids handle mental chaos that can come up when they're hungry? I would say the things I would notice in kids, they are more quick to have low blood sugar from being hungry, and they are less adapted for sure at regulating those emotions. And so they often behave distracted, they are angry, they are grumpy, they are moody, they seem very dysregulated. And it's interesting that you would mention that because another thing that I notice a lot in my profession is those often also are the kids that are labeled with, I wonder if this child has ADHD. (laughs) I wonder if they have some mental health diagnosis or problem. Do they have oppositional defiant disorder? And oftentimes, I think, have we thought about how this kid is eating? Are they eating a whole lot of sugar and really like quick processed food that doesn't stay with them for a long time and create sustainable mood and energy? And if so, let's start there. Because I would be distracted too if I only had either nothing or if I only had some sort of refined processed carbohydrate for breakfast with nothing else, then by 10 a.m. or 11 a.m., I would feel tired and moody and like I couldn't focus as well. So I think that kids really do show that chaos that you're talking about, and they show it without reservation. I think sometimes adults try and keep it together, but when kids are hungry or tired, they behave badly, whether they're in front of me in my office or whether they're with their parent or whether they're at school. And I think sometimes adults try and keep it together until they sort of keep their their chaos together, like when they're at work. And then they go in their car and sort of like have their breakdown or they go and find something to eat or, you know, when they're in my office or your office, they try and keep themselves more regulated. Yeah, that's a good point because kids haven't learned how to regulate emotions as well as adults have. And so it's almost more dangerous to be an adult with these sorts of issues because then you keep it together until you can't. And then it just goes overboard. Like you said, right when I hit my car after work, that's when it all just goes to pieces. I just want to know if blood sugar really does have an effect on your mood. Blood sugar absolutely has an effect on your mood. That's one of the key things about what makes someone hangry. And when we say that, what we mean is when somebody's blood sugar is balanced, they feel like life is okay and everything's okay and I can handle the life tasks at hand, whether that's the emails, whether it's my job responsibility, whether it's my relationship, my kids, my family. I feel like I have it all together and I can and keep these things balanced. When my blood sugar is either too high or too low, I do not feel that way in my life. So if my blood sugar is too low, that would be I haven't eaten. Or another way that you can have too low of blood sugar is I've overeaten sugars or carbs, and now I'm in a residual reactive low afterward. Mm. 
So that's the picture I draw in the offices. You can eat an abundance of food. I don't know if I, probably people can relate to an experience, and I have this as well. If I go have a meal for lunch that happens to have a lot of rice or a lot of pasta, so Mexican food or a Chinese food meal where I might eat more than I normally do, but I also eat more carbohydrate content than I normally do. I will come back to my office after lunch and feel like I'm having trouble staying awake because I'm getting sleepy because my blood sugar now went way up with the abundance of food and then it drops afterward. So within an hour or two afterward, I feel like really low. And the the signs and symptoms of low blood sugar are things like I feel tired, I feel restless, I feel like I have to fidget around in my chair, I feel like I want a cup of coffee, I might even feel like I want some more carbohydrate to lift me back up into a normal blood sugar state. I never knew that, actually. I have experienced that, certainly, but I never had attributed it to blood sugar. Falling asleep in a session is not something that I want to do, and that has definitely Mm. happened to where it's like, I think I need a cup of tea or something. So I notice it in my body for sure. I never thought about it being a blood sugar thing, though, as far as maybe being high and then it dips lower. Thank you for listening to Calming the Chaos. Our interview with Katie Hart was so full of information that we decided to split it into two parts so that you can digest it all at your leisure. And so we'll continue our conversation about hangry, which includes a discussion about blood sugar levels and coping techniques for helping the hangry. And you can find this at Helping the Hangry Part 2. Thanks so much for listening and take care.